Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, who's splashing £30 million to boost diversity but asking staff to volunteer for redundancy? The Daily Mail outshines the sun as Britain's biggest selling paper and is the risk to journalists covering civil unrest on the rise. Plus, if you want to be famous, you probably work in advertising. And in the Media Quiz, we'll be making our minds up about a Eurovision collaboration between Netflix and Magic. It's all to come on today's Media Podcast. And joining me today, planning director at Edelman and host of the podcast Democratically 2020, it's Karen Robinson. Hi, Karen. Hi there. Hi. I imagine you are studying a lot of presidential polls at the moment. And, uh, well, Biden's in the lead, isn't he? But I I wonder what you make of the uh, Democrats' media strategy right now, because Trump is still sucking up the airtime. Uh, Trump, Trump is sucking up all the airtime by doing things that hurt him with voters. So, you know, what's the old Napoleonic saying, when your enemy is making mistakes, don't, don't interrupt him. Um, so Biden's poll, poll numbers have been going up significantly. I mean, Biden's had a steady lead in polling uh, since before he won the primary, long before, but it's been going up more recently. Um, it's worth saying, though, I mean, in terms of Biden's media strategy, it's interesting because there's this there's this kind of prevailing narrative that he's been absent from the media. He's actually doing a lot of interviews. He's out there kind of doing a lot of work in the public, but it just isn't at the kind of global screw-up level that Trump does. I mean, anything Trump says gets massive coverage instantly because he's controversial, but the controversy is turning people off. So we're pretty comfortable with Biden's... Uh, don't be an idiot strategy. It works for me anyway. All right. Also returning to the pod today, Director of Creative Media Partners and no relation to Karen, Paul Robinson. Hi, Paul. Hi. Hello. Hi. Now, I should say, as a result of your smooth sounding contribution last time, I went out and bought myself a portable voiceover booth. Uh, I can now see you on camera so I can see it. You also have like a box of, it looks like handcrafts to your top right there. What else are your studio secrets? Um, nothing else really apart from just working fairly close to the microphone. The Rode microphone is really good. I mean, what, what I love about this particular microphone is it's actually USB powered. So it plugs straight, straight into the laptop. So no phantom powering. So really easy. So if you're taking it around portably, it's fantastic. Have you ever done QVC? I'm just saying it's an option. It's, it it's is a- an option. No, yeah, definitely. You're very talented. Um, and uh, making his media podcast debut, it is former BBC journalist and senior lecturer in sports journalism at the University of East London, Deccan Apaji. Hi, Deccan. Hello, Ollie. How are you? I'm good. Give us a flavour of your lockdown media highlights. How has your media consumption changed? It hasn't changed dramatically, I don't think, from what I was doing Even with before. no sport to watch, though? Oh, that's the only thing that I miss is the sport. But everything else has kind of stayed the same. Uh, right, let's start with uh, commissioning news because the BBC has announced new targets to make TV productions more inclusive this week. Uh, now, Deccan, this happened right after hundreds of black and Asian creatives signed an open letter taking aim at the industry's lack of diversity. So tell us about that letter first. It's, well, it seems like it's a bit of a coincidence, isn't it, that all of a sudden a letter appears <laughs> <laughs> written by um, some quite well-established um, and high-profile individuals and all of a sudden the BBC make another announcement um, this week to say that they're going to um, invest in DNI and, and make that kind of the focus of their of the next few years which is which is really interesting some of the people on the list include um, Michaela Cole we've got um, Noel Clark um, who's kind of well known for his um, kid adulthood adulthood films as well as kind of pushing about ba- pushing the boundaries and getting um, young black um, men seen on screen 
I think. And there's, there's a whole kind of raft of people. And they're calling for the BBC to do more, to do more than just kind of the usual chat. Oh, we're going to, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, we've got plans to do this. And to do more for people behind the scenes, behind the cameras, not just the actors and um, the people that we see, the presenters, which I think is always the easy go-to for not just the BBC, but for all kind of media broadcasters. Let's just get some black ethnic minority faces on screen and, and that's our tick box, that's it. I mean, um, case in point is um, Murder in Paradise. I mean, that must tick every single kind of um, box for the BBC in terms of how many black people can we get on screen? Well, we've had hundreds on because they've all in Murder in Paradise. Actually, no, it's not because it's not about, the focus isn't about a black person. It's set in a, an, on a black island, but it's focused around this English guy who comes over to be the lead character. And that's what they say needs to change. So it's those stories need to be changed. There, there is a, um, a desire, a hunger to hear stories about the black community, black and ethnic minority communities. And we need black writers and black producers involved in those conversations. And so, Paul, tell us about the pledge that the BBC have made, £30 million worth of their TV commissioning budget towards diverse and inclusive programming. It's quite a big deal. It is. It's quite a lot of money. And look, I think that's great the BBC are doing that. And it sends a very positive message. And of course, you know, no one is going to dispute the objective, which is to make sure there's a, a proper diverse range of people both on and off screen. And I think uh, Deccan was talking about off screen as well as on screen. I think those two are equally important. It's still a fairly small amount of money. And I think the success is going to be, of course, when there's no longer the need to allocate an amount of money, but it's happening organically, naturally within the BBC. I think the BBC as a broadcaster, you know, has a responsibility because it's public money too. So it's good to see the BBC taking a lead. They're probably not the worst offender either. I think there's other industries uh, within the media industry who are worse. And this letter, of course, is about the movie industry. Um, and I, you know, I have some experience here because obviously I worked in Hollywood for a while for both the Walt Disney Company and for NBC Universal. And um, I think in the movie industry, there probably is institutional racism uh, there, and that continues to be the case. I think the BBC is probably, uh, let's say, less worse than many, many other players in the media industry. But the artist and film director Steve McQueen, Karen, said this week, if you want to examine race and class in this country, start by going on a film set. So in other words, saying that the situation has improved in the USA when he's been working there, and then he comes back to Britain and still sees, essentially, in his view, too many white faces, that there is a racist policy of recruitment in the film industry. Uh, I mean, obviously, the black population in particular is larger in the States than in the UK. But do you think he has a point? I think there is definitely a point there. And I think it's a point that won't wholly be solved by just throwing money at at work that's specifically designated as being, quote unquote, diverse um, content. It, it probably is a problem that can, needs to be solved by hiring at the top levels of the business. Um, I think what we've learned a lot through the Black Lives Matter movement more recently has been that there have been stories out there um, that are compelling, that are, you know, heartrending, that are incredibly important, that are not being told, not because people don't want to hear them, but because the decision makers at the top of the tree um, don't relate to them, can't can't see the truth or, or interest in them. Um, so I think it is, you know, I certainly welcome anybody making an investment in um, kind of making the con- conscious effort to diversify the programming. Um, but I think Steve McQueen's point is, is absolutely right in terms of, you know, until the decision makers have diverse points of view and until the decision makers have diverse life experiences, they're going to just, you know, as human beings, we relate to the experiences that are familiar to us or recognizable. Um, so if you want to reflect the public, you need to have the, the people at the top of the tree reflecting the public as well. And that's where you get to the point about class prejudice, isn't it, Deccan? Because Steve McQueen made this point too. He said, you know, on a film set, there are fewer opportunities for people from poorer backgrounds, black or white. That gets somewhat missed because of the Black Lives Matter backdrop to this conversation that's going on at the moment. But he was making a point about access for everybody, not just people of colour. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, he's making a, a really a valid point, and it's something that we need to we need to recognise. Class has been a massive divide, especially in this country, for a very long time. We haven't had the, I guess, the overt um, racism that we see in America and those kind of the segregation that we've seen in America over the decades in this country. But it, it is very subtly kind of thrown in there, and it's and I guess race and diverse and race and class have been mixed together and merged into kind of one. So that the it, the conversation gets a little bit muddied. It's not to say that there's not a problem with um, class, but it kind of gets mixed up with the conversation about black lives. And I think there's they're kind of two separate issues that need to be resolved and need um, some kind of response for it. I mean, when I used to, um, I spent some time in my youth as a um, doing castings 
So I'd be the person that was in the crowd and doing those different things. And whenever I used to go on set, and I did quite a, quite a few films actually, when I think about it. Um, yeah, the set, the the crew was predominantly white. You could tell that they were um, kind of middle middle class. Um, and I guess that's the type of people that have the opportunity to to do those things. It's it's can you spend four to six months of your life um, on a set with next to no money, next to no pay, running around because you've got the backup of parents or that's that kind of security around you that allows you that time to do those things. It's something I speak to my students about often because at University of Sunderland, students there do come a lot from disadvantaged backgrounds. They are from the working class backgrounds predominantly. They're often kind of the first um, people that have gone to university in, in their households. And that's something we have a conversation about all the time is that you're going to have, you're going to come across these environments everywhere throughout the whole industry and they still exist. And you, and unfortunately you're not going to have, or those young people aren't going to have the same opportunities as someone else has who can put their son or daughter or kind of payroll them essentially for six months to do an internship a free internship whereas those people can't because they're they're supporting their families their carers for their parents or siblings etc so there's a there's a real issue there that needs to be kind of looked at quite deeply i think in a way though it seems a bit odd to be talking about effectively recruitment paul when you know the other news story that's happening at the moment suggests that lots of people are about to lose their jobs so sticking with the bbc uh, there's now a voluntary redundancy scheme Uh, They have to make an extra £125 million of cash savings this year, and more than a third of the BBC's costs relate to its people. Um, I I mean, you're going to see lots of people either choosing to or being forced to, to get out of there. Well, I mean, a couple of points. The first one about the BBC and the 25 million, 125 million. It's a lot of money, but of course, in the context of the total BBC budget, it's quite small. It's about two and a half percent of the total five billion the BBC gets a year. The problem with voluntary redundancy, of course, is you don't always get the people you want to go leaving, and you end up with an organisation that's misshapen. So um, there may well be some issues here about who comes forward. And of course, the BBC are saying there's no guarantee that if you apply for voluntary redundancy, you'll get it. I think the bigger picture here is the BBC, of course, is relatively well insulated against the financial impacts of COVID-19 because the licence fee is paid irrespective of uh, you know what's been happening in the, in the bigger world. Um, the, the broadcasters, such as those supported by advertising, and I have talked to a number of um, senior execs at ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, they're really concerned because, for example, Channel 4 are cutting their programming budget by about 25%, but they've got the same number of hours to fill. So they're looking for content at lower tariff, and that means they're going to be squeezing down not only on numbers of people working, but also on the amount they pay people. And the sort of global picture here um, is there's about 100,000 people, 100,000 people in the UK working as effectively freelance, non-staff, non-PAYE, in the broadcast industry across TV, radio, print and online. And uh, it's going to be very tough for some of those people. And I think we're going to see, unfortunately, uh, people are going to be exiting the industry because there's not going to be enough jobs to go around. The BBC um, does need to make savings, and indeed it should do, but I'm not sure that the voluntary redundancy is going to do the right thing for them. Well, one area we know it's going to affect, Karen, is in the BBC's local news provision. Uh, MPs this week had a Commons debate backing more than 100 celebrities and journalists who'd also signed an open letter. Uh, Their one was about not axing inside out and Politics England, which are the regional current affairs shows for England the BBC makes. I mean, have you ever seen Inside Out? I don't <laughs> sound like a very sort of southeast metropolitan bubble thing, but maybe it is popular around the country in places outside of London, but it seems to me like the kind of show people are very keen to get up in arms when you're about to ax it, but no one actually watches. Yeah, I mean, I, I have seen Inside Out. I, I couldn't say, honestly, that it rocked my world, but I'm aware of its existence and I've seen bits of it before. Um so, I mean, I think in general, I am a strong advocate for intervening wherever possible to support um, local and regional content. I'm not sure that Inside Out is fulfilling that bill for me. I think you need people from a news coverage point of view. I want people in city council meetings. I want people showing up to, you know, really, you know, local government uh, initiatives, people uncovering corruption at local government level, all, all these kinds of things. Um, is where the is where the value is really being added, um, but I I sort of echo Paul's point. My concern about a voluntary redundancy approach to doing things is that what you find is the people with the best options, the people with the most alternatives, um, that are the the best staff, the people you want to keep, 
wind up leaving. I've got some direct experience of this because in my previous employer, um, when I was working at, uh, at Ogilvy, they went through a, a phase of offering laundry redundancy to people across the business. Um, and I can tell you, there were some, some great people who stayed, but there were also some, some truly excellent people who left the business at that time, which in other phases of life, I think we would have bent over backwards to keep. Um, so I think you, you wind up hollowing out um, some of the talent. And quite often it's, you know, it's the talent who are bringing innovation because um, innovation is really hard. And if you're somebody who's kind of a, a forward thinker, you know, a different, you know, got, got a different mindset, even who brings some diversity, um, you know, quite often they're the ones who get the most frustrated and, and ready to take an opportunity and jump to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, talking of talent, Deccan, I saw one of the DUP MPs in the House of Commons effectively saying, perhaps this is unsurprising, I know what the BBC should do. They should cut the amount of money they give to their big stars and then they could fund inside out that way. But I mean, you know, then you end up with less talented people on screen and on air and the whole surface is depleted, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. And I I can understand what he's saying because there has been this argument within the BBC, even when I was there, that you have some really good, really talented presenters, particularly that get extortionate amounts of money or compared to kind of the producing reporters get substantially um, large sum of um, money and you think actually the reporters and the actual people that are doing the graph the producers don't get that remuneration at all the BBC for me is a public service broadcaster they're not there to necessarily compete with um, the likes of the commercials like the ITVs the Skies in, in the same way I think BBC for me has always been there as that as that foundation the, the sure thing that's always there that's guaranteed that produces really good quality content um, sometimes some really excellent stuff, but you can just rely on them consistently to produce good quality stuff. And I think they've lost that in this kind of, in the last kind of 10, 20 years, I think. They're not really sure what they're doing, where they compete from. I think this has come um, back and forth for them with the, with the license fee review that's kind of with the government and stuff and trying to kind of bow to government pressure as to where they spend their money, how they spend it. So they're in this kind of position where they're not really sure. So they're trying to compete with the big boys, but they, they sh- I don't think they should be. I think they should be about kind of finding, developing really good quality talent, producing excellent programs and good news coverage, good local news coverage as well, and doing what Karen said in terms of that investigative journalism, which I think is something that's lacking across the news um, landscape in its entirety, especially in the UK, we're really missing that. something that the commercial sector really struggles to replicate. Well, yeah, exactly. And that's something that the BBC could really shine a light on. They are really good at doing stuff. The BBC, for me, is is an organisation that constantly shoots itself in the foot and doesn't really shine a light on the good things that it does. COVID-19 has helped the BBC in some ways because it's shown the BBC can do some good, some things well. But at the same time, yeah, it's one of these things you just want to kind of just hold them and say, come on, get it together, guys and girls and everybody else. Do the right thing. Paul. Be very careful about the MP's motivations here in trying to argue very strongly for Inside Out or Sunday Politics or any of these other shows. Remember, MPs want to be on television and they therefore want these local shows because they want to demonstrate that they can uh, fulfil their local constituency needs. They like to be on these shows. So I'd be a bit careful that um, their motivations may not be about protecting regional journalism, but more about protecting an output for their own particular uh, points of view. That's the first point. I think the bigger point here about the BBC, and I do agree with what Deccan said about uh, the BBC not replicating the market, but I think for the BBC, there's a bigger issue, and that is thinking about how it covers regional journalism. I think there's no doubt that regional journalism is important, both in terms of covering regional stories and having journalists in the regions covering national stories. The BBC is, after all, paid for by everybody, so it shouldn't be spending all its money in London. It should spend its money around the UK because it collects its money from around the UK. But you look at local radio and local television and local journalism, even the local websites, um, the BBC needs to fundamentally review, I think, how it does regional broadcasting. There's been lots of stories about how brilliant local radio has been in these last few weeks in the crisis, and they have had a good engagement. But critically, what's the model for local radio going forward? What's the model for these local programs going forward? I think they need to fundamentally rethink it rather than just trying to decide whether they're going to keep one show or axe another one. That's really not the way. Stop cutting off limbs. Think about a new strategy for regional broadcasting by the BBC. Well, rethink, that's the big word at the BBC at the moment, isn't it? Uh, I mean, Karen, there's another danger here as well, isn't there, it seems to me, which is we've all just talked with great fanfare about this £30 million going in to support people from ethnic minorities, etc. But, you know, is that at the expense of regional voices of any colour 
now being frozen out. You know, if, if you're a reporter in Liverpool and you can't get on the screen with your Scouse accent, that is also a problem for diversity and inclusivity. Well, 100%. And I think that's, that's why kind of the point I was making earlier about diversity, you know, throwing money at the problem um, isn't going to be enough. What you need is genuinely representing the regions as they are, um, which means, you know, diverse voices all the time, diverse diversity of geography, diversity of point of view, diversity of life experience. Um, and, you know, I think, I think people... You know, the media often shortcuts um, a, a vision of what particular regions might be. You know, they, they, there are plenty of black people in Yorkshire, for example, um, but they don't show up on television very often. So I think it really is just not about not about earmarking and setting them in opposition to each other, as in you can either have regional coverage or diverse coverage, but about making sure that you're really representing the country as it stands. Um, and I think, you know, I think people get that in theory, but it, when in practice, they wind up they wind up setting them against each other and feeling they need to make they need to make either or judgments. And Paul, a bit of breaking news as we record. So sorry for springing this on you, but news that BBC Six Music's boss Paul Rogers is leaving the corporation after nearly 28 years has just landed on my desk. Do you think they'll feel well, his loss? Um, they will. Paul Rogers is a great producer. He's been at Radio 2 and BBC Six Music. And BBC Six Music is probably the BBC's greatest digital radio success. Uh, huge audiences and uh, audiences who otherwise don't listen to other BBC networks. So, yes, Paul Rogers is a great executive. Um, there are plenty of good people in the BBC. Uh, I'm sure they'll find a replacement, but he is a loss. OK, we will be back with more media news and we will not be talking about the BBC after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. All right, let's switch to the press now, because after 42 years as the UK's best-selling newspaper, The Sun has lost its title to the Daily Mail. Uh, Karen, all print title sales are down, but wh- why do you think The Sun is losing buyers at twice the rate of the Daily Mail? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's because women don't like it. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, to me, it's it's the Daily the Daily Mail actually does. It has a lot to offer. Um, perhaps I think the, the the sun is just feels a bit old fashioned, feels a bit kind of past its peak. Basically, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Um, I think the Daily Mail, of course, has a, a phenomenal digital offering, which is probably helping us a lot, them a lot in this this day and age. Um, and then I think you know that the, the COVID crisis has changed how people consume consume paper in in all sorts of ways, including reducing free distribution, which I think has, has hurt the sun more than the mail. Um, so all of those things, but you know, to me, it's like neither of them are really my paper of choice, so I'm not that fast. <laughs> but it does say something, Deccan, doesn't it, about our country that uh, the approach of the Daily Mail, which I guess is it's more negative, isn't it, than what the Sun does? I mean, the Sun is quite happy to stir up a political shitstorm, but on the other hand, their kind of general modus operandi is we're here to put a smile on your face. I accept Karen's point about that might be your if you're a man, basically, but nonetheless, they try and brighten up people's days. The Daily Mail really, you know, works on the basis of let's all hate something every day. That's a shift. But yeah, I completely agree, Karen. I think time, times are changing, I think, and, and not necessarily for the better in terms of um, 
news and, and, and newspapers. I think they, the Daily Mail have, have found a, a formula that works for them and it is, it is revolves around negativity. And it's um, been doing that for years and, and with the kind of, with the Vote Leave campaign, with the EU stuff, all of these things have played right into their hands of kind of what they're, what they're about and how they go about kind of um, creating news for their, for their readers. So I think the, the world has changed. I think people have had enough of, of the Sun newspaper. I mean, I'm tired of, I've never bought the Sun newspaper. Well, I haven't bought it for probably the last 15, 20 years. I'm, I haven't bought the Sun newspaper. It doesn't, those papers aren't really showing you much. I think the, the mail gets away with it because it, it's got this hate aspect. So it gives you something to hate. But with the Sun, in terms of readership, people want, are looking for a bit more these days. And I think they're looking for that online. They, they're kind of, using um, various ways of um, getting content, whether it's through a different app or just through news websites that show what they want. And the sun is kind of outdated now. But it's quite interesting, though, Paul, isn't it, from a business point of view, that Mail Online is so massive online and they're also the best-selling print title. So it's not as if they're cannibalising their readers, actually. And the sun has battled with this, haven't they? They've kind of partially taken down their paywall and they're not competing on either front. Yeah, I mean, News Corp had struggled with the whole paywall thing for a while and just have never really had a coherent strategy for The Times and The Sun, in fact. Um, and The Daily Mail is absolutely not a paper of choice for me. In fact, I really, in many ways, loathe The Daily Mail. But I have to say, um, a bit as Declan was saying, they really know their audience. They know their audience. They know who they're serving. You know, when you read The Daily Mail, it's designed to make you angry and irritated. That's what it does very, very well. Um, and that plays to their particular constituency. The Sun sort of hasn't got a home now really it hasn't got a sort of a, a heart to it somehow and, and I mean that said look I mean I don't think it's terribly significant that someone actually becomes the top selling paper in a declining market where one's lost 11% year on year and one's lost 5% year on year the reality is they don't give is- away any free copies though so that is a difference isn't it people are paying for it they, they don't. I mean, the free copies might have made a difference. I mean, were it not for the lack of uh, copies being given away at airports and so on, which clearly has happened as a result of COVID-19, maybe this um, uh, overhauling of the sun might have happened this month. It might have happened next month. But the trend's been going on for quite a long time. We can see this coming. The reality is that national newspapers are becoming less and less significant. It just is at the moment the Daily Mail's a bit more significant than the sun. And possibly less significant, Karen, as part of the political conversation as well, as they're increasing increasingly polarized or the best-selling titles are i mean i guess the kind of the sum that what won it might have been slightly overstated in the past but they clearly did have an influence on their readers and they were prepared to swing from left to right or at least you know from the left of right of center right whereas the mail is not going to tell its readers to vote labor is it well no presumably not but i think i think there's a, a deeper impact of um of the daily mail approach to things which uh, which touches on the political landscape which is the polarization aspect um, and that's and it touches on what I was saying earlier about kind of the online aspect of the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail newspaper, as it does the same thing that its online forum does, which is like Facebook, uh, it polarizes, it, it optimizes its algorithm for polarization, right? So um, it creates outrage that it then monetizes, and it does it very effectively. So obviously, it has a strong editorial point of view and a political point of view, but I think the bigger danger is just that it optimizes us to feel angry and upset and afraid all the time in a similar sort of way to what what social media has done and in exactly a similar way to, to how the digital version of, of the Daily Mail is doing it. That's an extremely compelling commercial model, right? It's an extremely compelling way of generating engagement and loyalty and, and sort of, you know, Everybody wants candy, right? More and more engagement, more and more um, strong feelings, right? Give me more. Um, people never just go, that's fine. Thank you. I'm well informed. I'll go away now. Um, and that's what the Daily Mail has done. It's optimized that type of outrage, um, which is exactly what you're seeing in our politics. And that, that is now, it's more the politi- that, that the newspapers, the online platforms, all these things have actually changed politics rather than the politics is changing the newspaper. This was an intriguing statement from a spokesperson for The Sun, I felt. Uh, We care most about the measurement that reflects our readers and our industry in 2020. The latest PAMCO data, the best measure of a total brand audience across print and digital, shows record reach for The Sun. We engage 39.8 million people monthly, fuelled by our agenda-setting journalism exclusives, etc. We're the UK's biggest and most popular news brand. So we'll all have to remember that then, won't we, Karen? If if they if the Sun overtakes the mail in conventional paper sales again, they're not interested in that. It's not important. <laughs> have you heard of Pamco? 
I love a cherry-picked data point. Brilliant. <laughs> I am perfectly comfortable on behalf of my clients picking whichever data point happens to be most favorable to us at the moment. That's totally fine. Do you ever look at Pamco, Paul? No, never heard of it. No. I preferred her early work. Um, let's talk as well about magazines that are closing, um, because uh, Bauer have announced three more titles that are closing this summer, Paul. Tell us about those. Yes, so um, Bauer, one of the biggest uh, publisher radio groups in Europe, and they're closing um, Planet Rock. This was launched about a year ago um, on the back of the radio station. Practical Photography, now there's a fantastic title, which was established in 1959 in a clearly a different world uh, when we all had cameras um, as opposed to cell phones. Um, Golf World is being merged with today's Golfer magazine, but lots of others. There's um, Your Horse, um, Your Horse, that is Ollie, uh, Angler, Car Mechanics, Modern Classics and Q. I mean, what this says is these are niche titles uh, with very small circulations. You know, Practical Photography, 32,000, Golf World, 21,000, Your House, Your Horse, rather, a stunning 17,522. Unfortunately, you know, the economics of these titles is not there. What I don't know, of course, is whether this is genuinely a consequence of COVID-19 or whether COVID-19 is being used as an excuse to close what might otherwise have happened anyway, or maybe they've brought it forward a bit because uh, I think this was probably going to be on the cards at some point anyway. Um, I suspect they brought these announcements uh, forward to protect them, particularly in a world where their revenue is obviously challenged and their radio revenue is challenged too, of course, because um, uh, all radio stations are, are suffering from a lack of brand advertising at the moment. I wonder whether as well, because they're selling Q, aren't they, or trying to sell Q. Yes. I wonder whether the truth is just having one stable, because of all these amalgamations that have happened over the years, one stable that has Q and Planet Rock and Mojo is just three titles targeting the same people. You have to think so, don't you? I mean, if there's discrete differences, maybe, but they're largely the same audience. They're all music-loving audiences, and there's probably not room for all of them. So um, I think that's exactly what they're trying to do. But I wonder, Deccan, when it comes to thinking about journalists who are going to be losing their jobs, a lot of whom are going to be listening to this right now, Actually, whether there is some good news in the sense that uh, I noticed that, for example, whilst they're closing the print and digital editions of Mother and Baby, they are focusing instead on the brand's online presence and flagship awards event. Now, I get that the awards is a different thing, but actually the brand's online presence does mean presumably articles about what's the best cot and what's the best buggy and, you know, how to keep your baby safe when it's got colic. And I mean, that is journalism, isn't it? People are going to have to write that stuff. That is a form of journalism, yeah. <laughs> it's a form of journalism that I've made... Um very good use of in the last few years since we've had our two kids been constantly on there looking at the top 10 lists for every single item you could possibly want to buy for your children um, just to make sure that we're getting everything that our next door neighbours have really um, yeah it's I guess yeah they're they're still keeping that stable of um, journalists they're they're getting journalists to do their own kind of digital transport internal digital transformation to get them to use more online tools to get them to use the web and social media and, and social media apps etc a lot uh, a lot better i completely agree with paul it's it's a magazine or some titles that are just repeating the same old thing over and over again i do suspect as paul's also said that this was an announcement like you're seeing along our high street lots of shops are closing they were going to close anyway they've just brought the announcements forward and, and are using covid19 as that kind of umbrella to say oh this has happened now we've got to close it now we've got a really valid excuse instead of it's been our poor management for the last five or ten years which has meant that we haven't seen the, tr the move to digital and to online and seeing how our shoppers are kind of doing things and how our readers uh, are using um, our resources and, and consuming our content. But let's now just use COVID-19 as this big rubber stamp to say, oh, it's got to go, unfortunately. Okay, let's talk about advertising now, because there was a study out this week, Karen, which suggests that advertising execs think people care about money and fame way more than they actually do. That advertising executives are out of touch with the general public what did you make of it? Well, this was an absolutely fascinating piece of research. Basically, the finding of this research was that um, the people within the advertising industry massively overweight um, kind of extrinsic factors. So they overweight things like fame or financial rewards or ownership of, um, of kind of luxury goods, etc., as a motivator for people. Um, Partially, the, the, the study contends because the people in the sector themselves do this, which kind of comes back to our previous point about having more representation of all sorts of points of view. Um, you know, so that it's always a danger. I know, you know, everyone in my industry is very aware that we are not representative of society as a whole. And, you know, we have to be thoughtful about that. 
Um, so I thought it was really interesting and it did, you know, I related to it a lot from personal experience. I mean, I'll just give you one little anecdote, if I may, of um, a time when I was working at a different agency, uh, not the one I currently work for now, I, I hasten to add. But we were working on a, a... If the media podcast is about anything, Karen, it's about giving you space to add the additional personal anecdote. <laughs> if you mean gossip, I want to hear. So I was uh, working at a different agency um, and we were doing a project that was aimed at, meant to be aimed at sort of women, you know, slightly older women who are a little bit unfit and reluctant to exercise, trying to help them encourage to encourage them to live healthier lives and lose weight. And the creative team had come up with a concept around creating a fashion show for these women in shopping malls throughout the country. And I had to come in with the consumer insight of women who are slightly overweight and unfit desperately do not want to be in a fashion show. Like that is the, that is their worst nightmare. <laughs> They feel bad about themselves. They don't want, you know, they don't want to be, you know, strutting yeah. on a runway. And I had to actually go and find lots of data points to prove that this was true. <laughs> because intuitively, everyone in the agency really wanted to be on stage, right? This is this is the mindset and the attitude that people bring in. They were they weren't bad people. They didn't mean ill. They just couldn't get their heads around the fact that you know a forty six year old overweight woman in the Midlands isn't necessarily desperate to strut her stuff. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's something we need to be thoughtful about. Um, and, and, and also like go and talk to some people, <laughs> get out of, get out of your office or, you know, get on a zoom call, but you know, it's always important to bring people into the conversation, how, you know, speak to some of the actual consumers that you're marketing your product to, um, you know, don't just, and not just surveys, like observationally, go and talk to them. What's their body language? What should they do? Um, you know, and we, we, we shortcut that too often and we, we, we can't, we have to, we have to talk to talk to people as they really are and see what they really do. Um, quite often, our, all of our data is misleading about these things. It's also quite interesting, Deck, and something that I noticed is that uh, in this Aspiration Window paper, it showed that uh, marketers thought that people cared a lot more about how ethical brands are, and the general public don't. I mean, we're, we're living in a world of, you know, Blackout Tuesday and all that stuff. You know, your social media profile is really important you know, that your company that makes bake-at-home pies has a position on whatever the latest political situation is. And actually, the general public, when surveyed, said, no, it isn't. Essentially, I, I want to know what pies you make, what flavour they are, and how much it will cost me. Yeah, I, I found that quite an interesting stat, actually, because I thought it was going to be the other way. Um, not Partly because of kind of how everyone's thinking about um, climate change and global warming and all, the, and all these things and how that's come to the fore in the last few years. I thought people would be a lot more kind of aware and wanting to know what these companies are doing i mean when you watch the news most of the stories prior to kind of covid19 were about companies transforming how they um deliver stuff how they sell their goods not using plastics anymore all of the all of these things so i thought me when i was thinking i thought that was a little bit strange because i think for me i want to know those things i'm thinking about my future but i guess yeah there's still a lot of people out there that aren't on board that climate change train as it were they're still very much just give it to me how cheap can i get it when can i get it and of this kind of Amazon Prime type of mentality where they just want things now and they just don't really have any um, sense or, or, or thoughts behind it. Not because they're missing, not because they're bad people, but just because they just need it now. And I guess it's not important to them. Yeah, it's not important. I mean, that's it, isn't it, Paul? You know, media savvy people who work in the media think a lot about the media and everyone else just doesn't. They don't know what some of these things mean. It's not important to them. It's not important in their daily lives. The media is just part of it. You know, to us, it's critical. To them, it's not. I mean, just a quick anecdote. I remember um, when Classic FM, you know, the national commercial station launched, it had a really difficult time getting advertising in its opening years. And the reason is that most of the buyers in radio are really, really young. And they weren't listening to Classic FM. They weren't listening to classical music. They were listening to Capital or Radio 1. And so Classic FM had real difficulties. Those buyers couldn't really understand what it was like to sell to a 45-plus ABC1 classical music listener. The history is that advertising people have never understood their target audiences properly. They understand the people who are like them. And we're all like that a bit. You know, it's a bit like the DJ who plays the records he likes rather than the records that are right for the audience. You've got to try and get into the mindset of the consumer. I was too slightly surprised how 
um, little interest there was in environmental um, sustainability and good work practices and so on. But I think at the end of the day, people actually just want the right products. And here's one example, which I think has been a depressing example of COVID-19. You've seen all these pictures of um, parks and beaches um, as people have flooded back to those, being able to come out during lockdown and then leaving them covered in plastic bottles, a sea of plastic bottles. And even around here where I live in Canary Wharf, I see people leaving just piles of rubbish and it's all plastic drink bottles. And then they fall into the dock and they might then end up in an animal or a you know, sea creature. People, unfortunately, um, are a little bit focused on their own agendas and don't always think about the bigger picture. They may declare they do, but their behaviour doesn't always match what they say they believe. And advertisers, Karen, sometimes perhaps are focused on their own research, not other people's. I mean, do you think this will have an impact on the industry? Will people just carry on doing what they've been doing because they think it's right? Oh, well, the industry is always going to carry on doing what it does. <laughs> um, whether this particular research will have an impact, I don't know. But, um, you know, people should, this is not, in some ways, this is not new information, right? We, we knew that we were not doing a good enough job of being thoughtful about the real lives of our consumers. And, you know, as a planner, it's something we, we push for all the time. Um, I think what often happens, not to make excuses for the industry, but what often happens is that clients will shortcut trying to get to the answer. So they cut out all the pieces of the, of the campaign development cycle that are about kind of exploring, right? Not, not knowing what the answer is. If you, you know, going out and exploring and talking to people and doing all this listening that we're talking about um, and really analyzing it and digging deeper from the data, um, that, that all just looks like a cost to them. So they, they cut it out. And what winds up happening is that you go out um, you go out to market with a campaign that, that is creatively very sound, but doesn't have any of that audit grounding in the audience. And I think that's where the danger comes in. And it's a false economy because you, companies wind up spending millions on campaigns that just don't reflect the needs of their audience at all. Okay, let's talk a little about the risks of being a reporter now after journalists covering the demonstrations in London on the 13th of June were targeted. Uh, Deccan, one photographer had uh, their nose broken and reporters had phones knocked out of their hands. Uh, have you ever encountered hostility like that when you've been out on a story? And if you had a done, would you have anticipated this kind of thing? Or do you think, as a lot of the coverage around this suggests, that this is new? I mean, basically, the suggestion is because of the fake news agenda, Trump and everything else, people being whipped up, journalists are fair game. Yeah, I think I think there's there's a real there's a real issue, and it's something we need to look quite deeply at, and and we need to really consider because when you get to the point where journalists are being targeted and not just by people from the far right or kind of um, demonstrators, but by actually the, the, the bodies or, or the individuals or the, or the governments actually that they're supposed to be speaking about and providing a fair and balanced report on, on what's happening. And they're being targeted by those individuals as we've seen in, in America as, as, and we're not given kind of straight answers as we've seen in, in the UK and just kind of batted away. If you've watched any of the COVID-19 briefings, you'll, have seen many journalists asking lots and lots of questions to the Matt Hancocks and Boris Johnson, but never really getting the answer, just kind of being spun around in circles. I think there's a real issue we need to be wary of because when that starts to happen, we need to, we need to be mindful of that. It's, ha it's happened before in our past and we need to look back at what happened before. I mean, there's that, um, famous, um, prose, um, first they came for, um, the, um, socialist and they came for the communists and then when and they came for the jews and then when they came for me no one was here to kind of um defend me or to speak up for me and that's the same kind of thing that's happening you might think that's a bit profound but that's the same kind of thing that's happening potentially with, with journalists as well they're the voice of the people they're supposed to be there to provide balance provide impartiality to provide um investigative um research into the issues into all of these things that are going on around us and if they're now becoming the targets and again, I don't think this has happened recently. I think this has been happening for a little while, but I think we're just seeing it a lot more um, vividly, with especially with the Black Lives Matter movement and all, and all these things, journalists being arrested by police officers, etc., and the far right process. I think we just need to be really mindful of that because once we go down that road and we, we start to target our journalists, whether or not you, you like what someone's saying or you disagree with them, they still have the right to say it. And I think that's really important. And that's something we need to make sure comes across. I mean, on a practical point though, Paul, I mean, you've been in charge of you know, staff who you've had to send out to cover events before. Are we at the point where bosses should be thinking twice about sending reporters out to cover unrest? I mean, when you have got a team of journalists and you're responsible for them, you're always aware that when you send them out on a story, there is some risk. I think there's a couple of points here. The first one is, I think that... Um, 
journalists were attacked, and that's unacceptable. But unfortunately, also the police were attacked, and many other people were attacked. Um, I think what you've got in this situation is, sadly, um, a bunch of individuals who've hijacked what is genuine peaceful protest, and peaceful protest should be allowed, and quite right to. But people have jumped on the back of this, and they've used it deliberately to stir up trouble. And unfortunately, journalists have been caught up in that fire as well. Um, I think um, the journalists, of course, does have a chance to withdraw. Uh, the policeman doesn't because they're on duty. So there's a slight difference there. Um, I don't know whether journalists have been targeted. Journalists should be allowed to do their jobs, of course. I don't know how widespread this is. Um, and it's not, of course, a new story. I mean, if you go back to the 1970s and, and what happened on the picket lines then uh, during the three-day week, you know, there was stories then about journalists being targeted. So it's not a new story, but it is important that journalists can do their job safely and hold people to account. And that's an essential role of journalists. Does it originate from the US, Karen, this particular meme? Um, well, I mean, it is it is a story that I've been watching very closely from a US perspective, because um, certainly it is the case that during the recent Black Lives Matter protests in the US, journalists appear to have been targeted strenuously by the police themselves. There are, I think, over, I think, nearly 200 instances of journalists being arrested, attacked, assaulted, sometimes live on air. I mean, there are multiple instances of, of journalists being um, uh, being tackled by the police live on air, which has been extremely disturbing, which is quite a different story than, um, you know, protesters gone too far or counter-protesters gone too far. Um, but I think that in the U.S. context, that, that touches on a couple of a couple of crucial things, which is obviously the political dynamic of, the, of policing in the U.S., um, they they tend to be very right wing um, and tend to be more leaning Trump supporting. I think there is a polarization, which is my second point, though. There is a polarization of attitudes towards the media, certainly in the U.S. and here, too, to some extent, um, which is not just you know, right, right wing, but actually exists on both sides, um, where there's criticism that's been directed at the media that has become criticism directed at the journalists. So we are seeing um, at political rallies and activism across the United States, um, journalists are, you know, confronted by, um, you know, pro-Trump and anti-Trump protesters on both sides. Um, and assumed to be the enemy. Trump himself uses language like the enemy of the people. This is a, a very common catchphrase that he uses, which of course links back to um, totalitarian regime, that the language that's that's designed to to stamp out opposition. So we're in a really dangerous place for journalism in the United States right now. And unfortunately, I think um, you don't you you often imitate the worst of us and not the best of us. So there is a there is an extent to which. Um, the, the polarization of attitudes to journalism on both sides. The left is also um, kind of translated what was a perhaps very reasonable criticism of journalism on its specific issues of objectivity. They've translated that into a more general criticism of, um, of journalists doing their job. And it, it is troubling. I do wonder, though, Deccan, whether slightly, you know, I'm just trying to get in the head of someone who would attack a reporter or a cameraman or something, Slightly the 24-7 news cycle, the fact that some of these people are live broadcasting when they're arrested by police or they are updating it to Facebook um, Live the moment it happens, means that if you're trying to get a message that you feel passionately out there, actually, in a way, you know, attacking a journalist is a better idea now than it used to be, isn't it? Because there you are straight away being mainlined to the top of everyone's social feeds. There is an exposure trade-off. Yeah, there is, there is an exposure trade-off, and I guess, um, like, I think it's just I don't think that I don't necessarily think in the heat of the moment in those protests that those individuals, especially with the far right, are, are kind of computing that and saying, "Oh, look, I'm now going to be top of Twitter. I'm going to be trending on Twitter. Look at me. Watch out for me, Mum. I'm going to be on the 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 number one Twitter trend tonight." I don't think that's going through their mind. I think that they're just doing that in the heat of the moment. Obviously, with the far right. Um, kind of protest that took place um, a week or so ago, they were fueled by alcohol and, and that does incredibly terrible things to people's judgment um, anyway. So that was just, I think, spur of the moment. I, I do think we need to be mindful. Again, I go back to, we need to be mindful of these things happen. I think, as Karen said, in America, it's a slightly different thing and it's slightly scarier watching things happen in America um, to journalists because when you see the actual police um, harassing and intimidating and bullying and assaulting journalists 
just doing their job, not trying to be the clever journalist that's putting their foot over the line or trying to sneak behind the, the tape or the cordoned off area, but just the journalist doing their job. When you see stuff like that, and then that's reinforced by messages that you hear in like the White House briefings where the, the president seems to pick on individuals and, and talk to people in, 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 a, in a manner that you, you wouldn't necessarily talk to people that you, if only you, did, you didn't like. It's, it's just really weird and, and slightly worrying because like as Karen said, we are a country that tends to copy even though we kind of exported a lot of stuff over to america we do kind of import all the all the kind of negative things back um here so yeah it's something we need to be really mindful of. but i don't think those individuals are are thinking that they're going to trend yes you might get the one or two um that will think actually yes this is going to make me famous but i don't think it does their cause any good okay there is just time you'll be thrilled to know to squeeze in our legendary media quiz to celebrate the arrival of the new netflix eurovision film fire saga Magic have launched a pop-up radio station playing the greatest hits from Eurovision's 63-year history. So I'm going to ask four questions about the collaboration between Magic and Netflix. All you have to do is buzz in with your name when you know the answer. Uh, Eagle-eared listeners will know that the last time we did a Eurovision quiz, it was a complete car crash, even worse than last episode. So, (laughs) fingers crossed. Here's question number one. What country did the stars of Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, represent in the competition? Which country do they represent? Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. Deccan. I'm just going to guess Switzerland. It's Iceland. The uh, film follows two fictional singers as they're given the chance to represent their country at the Eurovision Song Contest. Here's question number two. Who is the name of the female lead actress who plays opposite Will Ferrell in the film? Karen. Karen. Is it Rachel McAdams? It is, thank God we have a plausible winner here. Uh, it is Rachel McAdams who plays Sigrid Eric's daughter to uh, Ferrell's Lars Eric song. It's a very sophisticated satire. Here's question number three. How many branded pop-up stations have Magic previously operated, including Magic Eurosong? Paul, this is surely your chance to get in with a, <laughs> with a point. I don't know, 11. Anyone else? Karen, is it five? Deccan? I'll go six. Karen wins the point. It is five. Uh, including Magic Abba in 2016, which, uh, of course, only featured music from Norwegian black metal bands. Uh, And here's the final question, although it's fairly clear that Karen's going to win. What is the name of the actor who plays the Russian entrant? He'd previously starred in Downton Abbey. Deccan, he Bonneville. Close. (laughs) Thank you for trying. It's Dan Stevens, uh, who plays Alexander Lemtov, love rival to Lars. Uh, Magic Eurosong will be available until the 5th of July, and Eurovision Song Contest The Story of Fire Saga arrives on Netflix this week. Uh, All of which means that, Karen, you're the winner. Congratulations. My thanks to Karen Robinson and to Deccan Apaji and Paul Robinson. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to help us make future episodes, then please do take out a voluntary subscription. Just head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose an out to keep us going all year round you can also catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website themediapodcast.com i've been ollie mann the producer rebecca grisdale sherry and the media podcast is a ppm production until next time bye bye Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.